Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Dr. Brad Schoenfeld and Dr. Pat on the podcast to discuss a paper that they were both recently on. And if you're a competitor or you coach competitors, or even if you just go through fat loss phases, this is gonna be a really, really insightful chat for you because this review paper was looking at case studies of physique competitors and looking at some of the alterations and measurements of things like body composition, neuromuscular performance, hormone levels, physiological and psychometric outcomes as well. And it's really insightful and gave a lot of information that can help you as again, a competitor or practitioner or just someone who wants to go through fat loss phases to get the most from those and to avoid getting into some of the pitfalls or to just accept some of the changes that you might be able to understand are going to happen as you do diet down, especially as you get very, very lean. So definitely enjoy this episode. And as always, guys, if you do enjoy it, please do make sure to let us know whether or not that's a comment on YouTube. Subscribe also on YouTube, please. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast platform you're on. And if you can give us a review, please do. And if you could share it, that would be immensely helpful too. Whoever kind of tags me on social media, I always make sure to comment back and just thank them because it helps this podcast grow. It helps us continue to do it and get on greater or continue to get on great guests. So without further ado, guys, let's get into the show. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Dr. Pack on the show and I also have Dr. Brad Schoenfeld on the show. Uh, first time I'm having this pair together, but if you've been keeping up on social media, you can see that these guys have been hooking up over the last few weeks and they hooked up again on a study that not only these two individuals, but they were on this study. And uh, it's perfect timing because um, not that this will be coming out immediately, but a lot of bodybuilding shows are kind of ending at this period of time uh, of the year and people are also probably thinking about next year in terms of prepping and so this uh, kind of systematic review of case studies of physique competitors that you guys ran and you looked at various measures in alterations of things like body composition neuromuscular performance hormonal levels physiological adaptations and psychometric outcomes i think will be really valuable people probably who have been through prep this year or previous times will probably nod their head at a lot of the things that they're seeing here or be interested by the outcomes and i think it's just good education for people who are getting into it maybe for the first time or even for multiple times and not having realized what's going on kind of behind uh, the body in many ways so i don't know if if i start with you uh, pack in terms of because i know you've looked at case studies before and kind of ran your own why do you think just out of interest first why do you think these are kind of particularly valuable looking at these sort of um things <laughs> i don't know how else to phrase that yeah for sure so i think having access to that sort of population competitive uh, bodybuilders specifically going through uh, a preparation phase for a competition is something that is not very easy to to have access to and having sort of this um, holistic overview at a bunch of case studies and seeing how different people uh, respond to different sort of arrangements as far as their competition preparation goes can provide some some valuable insights for competitors that are looking to compete or have competed in the past and want to potentially adjust some things um or for people that are interested in getting leaner, 
um, where they can look at the extreme side of things and see that, okay, people who dieted for X amount of time experienced these changes hormonally, uh, physiologically, performance-wise, and so on and so forth. Um, at the same time, obviously, this uh, case studies must be viewed with uh, extreme caution because, you know, they are case studies. Um, but at the same time, if we look at the totality of available case studies on bodybuilding and then triangulate that with the available literature on, you know, for example, the effect of an energy deficit on various, uh, various outcomes. I think um, the, the insight, insights provided are really interesting for anybody who's interested in doing anything body composition uh, related. But yeah, from a personal standpoint, when um, Dr. Schoenfeld proposed that, uh, that we, we look at these case studies, um, as a lifter, for me, that was that was really cool. Sure, this is not the end or be all of uh, understanding the human body as far as bodybuilding competition preparation goes, but uh, it was really cool to collect all these unique sort of uh, and rare uh, studies and just look at what they all found together. For sure. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Brad. No, I think Pac summarized well. Well, I, have, I can just say that I think a couple of important points here that number one, it does provide a general consensus as to the range of the tools that are used by competitors. Uh, so I think that is certainly of interest to kind of see what people are doing, because that also drives research. When you understand what's being done in the field, that can drive research. And I think it also allows us in two ways to look at the data itself. We can look at number one, how do the different uh, you, you can actually try to look, it's not necessarily cause and effect, but you can look at what people are doing and then looking at what the effect was amongst different competitors and then try to see what might be, tease out what might be the reasons. And in this particular case, we did it both in men and women, so we can kind of get int interesting insights into the differences between the sexes and how they respond. Yeah, and really well said. Yeah, there was, I think uh, I saw there was 11 studies included, 15 athletes, eight male, seven female. So a really good mix of people there and everyone was drug free or I think at least attested to being drug free. I don't think you guys necessarily were kind of drug tested or they weren't drug tested within the case studies in particular. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, for the listeners, what was the particular goal of the paper? Was there a particular goal or outcome you guys were trying to achieve with it? Uh, you're asking me or Pac? <laughs> Both, but whoever's I, got the answer. <laughs> Let's go with uh, Pac. Feels like he's he's talking, so he's got an answer for me. I'm I'm, I'm always talking. I don't think there was a specifically a, a set goal. Uh, the aim was just as as Brad mentioned to look at how um, different different athletes, different bodybuilding athletes, uh, respond to a bodybuilding uh, competition preparation phase, and look at differences among different competitors uh, because they, it wasn't that we looked at specifically one category of uh, competitors um, and try our best to make sense of case studies that were somewhat uh, different in nature as far as you know the, the different training programs different uh, strength and uh, power tests um, but yeah the I, I guess I guess that was it. I'm not sure if Brad has anything else to to add as far as like an aim. Basically to provide descriptive information. That's the overall uh, reason to do case studies. And then to, as Pac said, to try to draw some inferences based on the different, uh, different programs that are being followed, both nutritional, uh, supplemental, and um, 
training was, and then trying to look at how do people respond and seeing what type of inferences might be drawn so that, hey, if we're seeing, let's say when people are dieting, I'm not saying this was the case, but if they're dieting too fast, uh, conceivably, maybe that's causing greater loss and you could try to tease things like that out. And that we actually did not find that, that people were dieting too fast, but that's why you do these stu- these yeah. types of studies to try to draw these insights. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Uh, oh, go on. No, sorry. Uh, yeah, as, as a researcher, um, and I'm, I'm just speaking for myself here, it was just one of those um, those projects that I went in thinking, okay, this is not going to be the game-changing systematic review that will absolutely change the way we think about stuff. But for us individuals who are in the trenches as well and, and love lifting, uh, this is a really, really nice opportunity to gain, uh, to, to to look deeper into the world of uh, bodybuilding uh, comp prep. Because, um, you know, when you look at a bunch of case studies together, if there's a trend that starts appearing there, obviously you have to interpret it with caution, but then that may lend itself nicely to future research and uh, give birth to, you know, future projects as well. So uh, it was a very cool uh, project to be involved in as a lifter, uh, aside from just a research yeah i was thinking that's what i was essentially going to say is like i I guess it could inspire future research into like what could be done to be better like why have we seen a certain thing happen here maybe we need to further research into that area which makes a ton of sense to help kind of minimize those negative outcomes that we're going to be talking about (laughs) uh, that happens during a contest prep unfortunately Um, or dieting like you said pack it's not something that's just solely happening to physique competitors just anyone who's kind of dieting will experience probably some of these to a certain degree and i thought it was actually really interesting like you guys were saying just seeing the wide range of general kind of approaches in terms of like volumes that were used kind of how their training was kind of laid out um, i don't know if one of you kind of dug into that area and have like uh, want to talk through the wide range of differences that you saw um i could provide um if if you if you want to could provide like a general sort of summary as far as what they did uh for volume wise sure. and sort of separated for men and women so f- for men now the thing was that in some of those case studies volume specifically was not uh described in a in a lot of detail but in for the the males that took part three uh all three of those com- um, completed around four to ten sets per muscle group per week uh, with the other two being somewhere in the 16 to 20 uh, set per week sort of uh, sort of range. And seven, um, seven of those males train at least four times per week with one training three to seven days per week. So you can see like it's, it's a bit all over the place, but overall um, a relatively moderate, like I'd say moderate to high training volume and a training frequency that was at, at the very least three times per week, but as high as seven days per week. But that was only for one competitor. Uh, for females, things looked similar um, with only um, three reporting, uh, just overall resistance training volume with uh, one of the competitors being around four to 10 sets per muscle group per week, uh, the other being around 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week. And one just reported, you know, total sets completed. So, which again fell around the 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week uh, landmark. And all uh, females were training around f- at least four days per week, uh, with none training over six days per week. So, overall, something uh, that I'd, I'd, I guess falls in sort of general general training guidelines uh, that that most people would look at and be like, oh, okay, so they were training as per 
per usual, if we may say that. Yeah. yeah, one thing we did not get, and really, when I say we didn't get that the wasn't reported, was what they were doing in the uh, before the uh, you know in the um, non pre competition period, so in the off season period. So we don't know if how much they might have cut their volume or increased it uh, based on their pre comp status. But yeah, I- um, sorry, and I just saw a notification from my bank on my phone from uh, Brad and Big Volume. Uh, so the money is in, and I, I have to say that this data sort of lends itself well to the argument that even during contest prep, moderate to high volumes uh, seem to be well tolerated. Uh, again, like aside from one, aside from a few athletes that were in the four to ten uh, sets per muscle group per week, you had plenty doing. 10 to even up to 24 sets per muscle group per week while preparing for a bodybuilding for a bodybuilding comp. So yeah, that's that's definitely interesting for me as a as a lifter and researcher. Yeah, and in fairness too, uh, to add to that, we don't know whether they would have gotten better results or worse results if they had have either increased or decreased the volume. That is a limitation of a case study. You're just basically following what someone is doing. Now, I will say that I was a collaborator on a study that actually did look at that volume during a deficit. It wasn't during pre-competition bodybuilders, but we looked at uh, what effect does volume have during a caloric deficit. And uh, there really was no, there were no negative consequences and no positive consequences of doing moderate to higher volumes. So confusing the audience now, 40 chess, <laughs> right as they were ready to type big volume strikes again, a little, a little flip there and we're back, we're back to normality. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think I also saw like the proximity to failure was like f- people were training all the way to failure. Some people were training yeah. three to one RR. So th- there was a wide range of approaches, but all within the kind of ranges that are generally spoken about as being kind of evidence-based recommendations for training for hypertrophy and that sort of thing, which made a lot of sense. Um, and then cardio, I saw like some people were using HIT, some people were doing nothing. Some people had um, 16 weekly sessions I saw up to that amount. It's, again, it's just like that wide span of different like approaches that people are taking to like ultimately an energy deficit, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Like with, with cardio as well, there was... Uh... There were there were athletes that would do cardio seven days a week so like four people had a max frequency of seven times per week um there was a person that did up to 13 uh, 13 times per week and in, in general the, the 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 cardio sort of uh practices that were reported the aerobic training practices that were reported were somewhat not all over the place but uh you had people doing more doing less but in general again we saw that they all incorporated some form of uh aerobic training with only one person exclusively uh doing hit and only four people doing exclusively steady state cardio uh whereas the the rest just did a combination of both hit and steady state cardio which I guess you'd you'd somewhat expect, right? You're you you've prepped for a comp as well. I'm not sure if that sounded like off to you or you were like, okay, yeah, sounds pre- pretty standard. Yeah, I think it, it depends on the competitor. Like some females really end up it's because they just are smaller and uh, they require less energy, <laughs> so their food doesn't get too low. They end up needing much more cardio potentially and. I don't know if it's as widely known to track steps and some people's neat could be dropping off. They don't realize. So they end up ramping up cardio. That's some of the things at least I've seen. If yeah. I recall, and I don't have the uh, stats in front of me, Pac, but if I recall the women 
did report doing a greater amount of cardio than the men did. Yeah. So they had an aerobic training volume of at least 50 minutes per week, whereas the men had um, 40 minutes per week. Um, well, with some going as low as uh, 30 minutes per week. So, yeah, they won. And you Not have that it was a competition. <laughs> as little cardio as possible, please. That would be the ideal. Um, but then the the other interesting thing, I think it wasn't necessarily how interesting the kind of initial calories were and then like the two weeks before peak week calories were, but it was maybe the change between the two and how there was just quite a large amount, like the smallest change versus the largest change between males and females was just quite stark where some people obviously adapt harshly versus others or you don't know exactly why they had to get where they had to get or make those like aggressive changes, but there was just a, a large range there too. Yeah, if I recall the uh, in pack again, I guess you have the figures in front of me, in front of you. But uh, if I recall from the data, the men had roughly double the the deficit was roughly double that. So women had a deficit of somewhere around three to five hundred calories, and uh, the men had it, I think, between five hundred to a thousand or so. But of course, the men are starting out with much higher uh, caloric intakes in the off season. So you're and they're generally bigger bigger individuals and they're also not doing as much cardio so you have to factor all of those things into it as far as your to create your total energy deficit mm -hmm. yeah. yeah one of the, one of the the males i saw his different start calories to end calories the largest was 2136 that's how many calories he had to drop whereas the female the largest was 1189 so quite starkly different in terms of how much they had to drop, which I guess we'll come into because of like uh, body fat levels uh, kind of come into that, like how much weight and body fat did someone have to lose? But one guy only had to drop his calories 52 start to finish. <laughs> so I don't know who that was, but that's quite nice. <laughs> yeah, there was again, and that that's the, not the issue, but like that's where we need to be careful with, uh, with these uh, case studies. There, there was, you know, there were big differences in the way they approached the, uh, their uh, their diet and it's not that we had you know a lot of information about what they did and how they did it so one must make some assumptions and must treat those uh, those figures reported with some caution and, and by the way that, I, I was going to say that also is a limitation of actual randomized controlled trials so if you're mm -hmm. looking at general research if you were going to let's which you never would get to do but let's say you would get a group of bodybuilders and they'd say all right we're going to go on the same exact program uh for for the six months or whatever i mean you have some that are starting out at 25 percent body fat and some that are starting out at 12 percent body fat and some people have obviously metabolisms are different and also, there's so many uh, inter-individual differences that you can't then necessarily track them and and, and decide that that's going to be the optimal uh, strategy for everyone. And that's why the inter-individual approach is necessary. I guess that's uh, that's a really good point in terms of just this big individual difference here. There's not one one way to do it. And there's almost, there could also be, you, you can't infer which one of these necessarily is, but there could also be many roads to Rome type of thing where some people are training maybe with a few more reps in reserve and doing a bit more volume versus the others training to failure, a bit few sets. That's me kind of inferring. I don't actually know if that was the case um, with the data there, but I think that's good for the listeners to know like, hey, there's there's many different ways to do this and it's going to look different to every for everyone uh, to some extent. Um, so I guess with 
that kind of initial kind of general approaches and the wide range of things that people had there. Now we could dig into the kind of uh, things that were measured uh, and how they changed throughout. So I don't know if we start with body composition, uh, which was, uh, again, split between males and females was probably the biggest interesting part of that. I don't know if, Pac, you want to kind of dive into that initially? Yeah, sure. So as you'd expect, everybody lost uh, quite a bit of body fat. And in terms of percentage, both males and females were relatively close. Males lost uh, about 8.7%. No, not about 8.7% and 8.2% for females. Um, they all averaged around uh, 0.35 kilos of weight loss per week. Uh, but female athletes lost weight a bit slower than male athletes now we're talking about absolute changes in in body weight so females were losing about 0.3 kilos per week where males were around the 0.4 kilo per week mark um obviously females started with a higher body fat percentage than men but that's that's to be that's to be expected so there were their starting body fat percentage was around 21% whereas for males it was around 14.5% which I think is interesting to sort of get an idea of, you know, where does it make sense to start your uh, your your comp prep. Um, females competed at around 13% body fat, whereas males were roughly at the 5% mark. Uh, and most male uh, athletes, uh, so were below 10% body fat when they competed, whereas for females, there was only one, uh, one athlete that had single digit uh, body fat percentage. What was interesting, uh, and we can get to that in a second, so female athletes maintained or slightly increased lean mass. Obviously, there was variation between athletes, but on average, um, females did much better as far as maintaining lean mass, whereas males uh, tended to lose uh, more lean mass. And it may have been that because the males lost weight faster at a faster rate, that explains that. But obviously, that's um, just just a way of us trying to explain the results. What else would we like to say here? I think I'm missing some of the bone density and data. If yeah. Brad, you want to touch on that? Well, I want to actually just go back to the differences in the lean mass loss and point out some things. Number one, lean mass is not necessarily muscle. So yeah. remember that water is taken into account in in that measure and losing water is going to result in a quote unquote loss of lean mass. So that needs to be understood. Uh, I am somewhat skeptical that the rate of loss, uh, we did put that in the paper, but I'm somewhat skeptical that that was an explanatory factor to me. I think it probably, and again, this is speculative, but it just makes sense that men got much lower in their body fat. So, and by the way, we carried out, our lab carried out a case study in a male bodybuilder, uh, which was in part of this uh, review. And uh, he did not lose much lean mass until he started getting below around 7% body fat. So he started out at, I think, 12, 11 or 12%. And the first couple of months, he hovered around 9, 10 and he was maintaining, but we did ultrasound too and maintaining his mass. And once he got below around 7%, you just started to see this rapid drop off where almost half of the weight loss uh, was coming from uh, lean mass. Wow. And uh, the women in this, in our case, uh, in our case study here, uh, in our systematic review of case studies, 
all were competing above 10%. I think the average pack was around 13, 14%, mm. somewhere around there. So yep. they never got very low to the point where conceivably that would be an issue. Now, look, there's other factors with women too, of course. Uh, women just physiologically may uh, start losing lean mass quicker before they get to 5% because of the uh, nature wanting to preserve uh, function, you know, or birth function. But I, I would say that it's at least uh, plausible and perhaps I think the most likely explanatory factor would be that there's, once you get very low in your body fat levels, it's first of all, possible to recomp. Uh, and I would say that it's really almost impossible not to lose mass. And and by the way, just another point, the all the competitors were plus two grams per kilograms. I think the range was somewhere around 2.1, 2.2 to 3.6 or so uh, grams per kilogram per day. So they were on a high, higher protein diet. Uh, so it can't be said, well, their protein intake was insufficient. Yeah. yeah I, and if we, yeah, sorry, awesome. the, the results are also interesting uh, for the females because there was a, there was a recent study that was published uh, looking at low energy availability and protein synthesis as well as muscle mass in trained females. And uh, we're talking about individuals who started around 24% body fat and they started at 2,400 calories, if I remember correctly, which was their maintenance. They had two groups. One group was maintaining at 2,400. The other group was at 2,400 uh, calories, and then they went on a 1,000-calorie deficit. So they went uh, down to 1,400 calories. They consumed plenty of protein, resistance trained, did cardio, and they were on these super low calories for 10 days. And just 10 days... Um, were enough for them to see some decreases in, in uh, lean mass, uh, decreases in muscle protein synthesis and resting metabolic rate. So I, I wouldn't take the results of uh, our systematic review and say, hey, you know, go on a on an extreme deficit and you'll probably be fine or even increase your, your, your muscle mass, but rather um, yeah, to view the results with, with some caution. Well, and the reason that I speculate that that wasn't a factor, that the rate of weight loss wasn't a factor, is that they really weren't that much different. They all lost weight relatively slowly. I think they were all under one pound per week. So I think it was like 3.3 kilograms or so, 0.3 something kilograms per yeah. week on average of uh, of weight loss, which is, is a slow weight loss. So the men were slightly higher, but they're also bigger. So uh, I don't think that that, just doesn't seem likely anything's possible. But to me, I think the more likely scenario is that when you, I think it's a nice hypothesis that when you get uh, below a certain amount, the body just wants to retain the fat that it has and it's going to start losing other muscle. Yeah. From, it's going to start losing weight from other forms, including muscle. Yeah. And, and that's how it was. Uh, Sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's how it was uh, described on the paper as well. It was mentioned as a, hey, this may be a possible explanation, but exactly as Brad said, um, they even the males, the, their weight loss was also consistent with what previous literature has shown to be more than enough for you to to maintain uh, muscle mass, in, even in elite athletes. And even if we look at, uh, I think it's the, the, the Murphy paper, where after a certain point, after 
let's say I think it was a 500 calorie uh, deficit. Things started to go south for most for most people. Uh, I think the results of the, the men in the case studies, in the case studies that we looked at, were not far off um, the sort of sweet spot where you're maintaining uh, muscle mass in that meta regression. But take that take that with a pinch of salt because I, I don't remember the exact figures. Well, and to that point, I am not going to somewhat of a spoiler, but I'm not going to give too much. We have a case study underway right now. And uh, there was some very rapid uh, weight loss and there was some quite rapid losses of lean mass. So interesting. Uh, we're, we're talking very rapid weight loss. Uh, I think, yeah, I, th I thought that was the really interesting point where the women maintained or even gained lean mass versus the males. And to me, you guys talking through that where it wasn't necessarily the rate of loss because that was relatively similar. It was just the fact the men got so much leaner. And I was going to say anecdotally, at least, I've seen competitors and worked with competitors and competed myself. And I see this point where you chase condition at a certain point where like, you're like, am I getting leaner or am I just getting smaller here? Because I'm like, I'm losing kind of like I'm losing weight and things should be going in the right direction, but my look doesn't seem to improving, but I'm just getting smaller overall. And it's kind of like the body is just sacrificing lean muscle at that point. And I wonder if, I don't know if you can speculate to this, Brad, but I've seen it where there are some competitors just can get this crazy condition and it's like quite rare for the, the kind of number of people that can achieve this. And I wonder if there's just a genetic component of where the body is, they have like a, a lower intervention point for where this might happen, maybe where they start seeing this kind of muscle loss. I don't know if you've seen that yourself. Well, that's the hypothesis. So anecdotally, yeah. And that leads to the hypothesis. So it kind of lines up. But uh, in drug-free athletes, obviously when you're not drug-free, uh, you can have other liberties that you're taking advantage of that will offset some of those things. But the question then becomes, do you want to chase a few more striations and lose your shape? So uh, that obviously is an individual consideration, but in my opinion, I think it's often mis, um, improperly done by most people where they end up, I think, missing the boat and they, they look worse. When I say look worse, they look shredded, but they also look flat and they, they just don't do as well as they could have if they had maintained some of the shape and had a couple less striations, I, I think they would have done better in the contest. That's it, why I'm uh, staying at 20% body fat year round. I can't risk uh, potentially looking a bit flat on any given day. So, you know, life is a bodybuilding competition, the bodybuilding competition. You you I never look flat, Pac. Thank you. Just fat. <laughs> my, uh, my bias was confirmed because I went to a bodybuilding show just this past weekend. And the guy who was, he's, was unbelievably shredded, the most dice person. I can't think of anyone who could ever be leaner than this individual. I spoke to him afterwards to just try and see if I could decipher to why. And he said he struggles to gain even five kilograms above his stage weight. And I was just like, oh, okay, <laughs> like, so you're super shredded just year round because that's where his body is happy being. So he just gets to that point way more comfortably than uh, any of us. <laughs> so that, that was nice and confirmatory. So the next thing was the hormone levels, which I thought was interesting where you looked at kind of uh, where they were at the start, where they were at the end. And I think, I mean, uh, a lot of people will have heard about the, what happens to males and females here, but to actually have some numbers to those. And then also the kind of hunger hormones, I think was interesting. So I don't know if you've got those to hand as well, Pac, you can talk through those a little bit. Sure. Um, 
unless uh, Brad wants to take this, I'm happy to summarize sure. the main points. But you uh, can Brad, summarize. I have some uh, some thoughts about particularly the testosterone levels in men. But why don't you summarize the actual? Sure. Yeah. So I'll just give a general summary for for everything that the study found. So testosterone levels in males decreased uh, during contest prep almost linearly, um, falling to hypogonadal levels by the end of the period. In uh, female athletes, testosterone levels uh, tend to increase or remain stable. Uh, estrogen levels in female athletes varied, with uh, some showing uh, significant elevations, while others remain stable or slightly dropped. Cortisol levels increased in all three athletes uh, that measured them. Two of them were male and one female. Um, and that was potentially, you know, during the because of the prep itself. Leptin levels were inconsistent in the case studies with uh, some, some athletes showing stable levels and others experiencing drops. Um, discrepancies, uh, sorry, uh, ghrelin levels generally increased over time in both male and female athletes uh, as they got deeper and deeper in contest prep. Um, which was somewhat confirmed with previous research uh, that, that 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 happens when you're in a calorie deficit for quite some time, and yeah, that, that that's the that's the general gist of it. Yeah, so I'd uh, to put in my two cents here. I think the testosterone uh, findings are particularly interesting um, because they go down. I mean, you're talking young; these are young men. Uh, I think the the oldest was in the in his thirties, if I recall, in the study. I think a couple of the women were in their forties, early forties. But anyway, I think the men there wasn't anyone, if I recall, older than their thirties, and they all had beginning testosterone levels above six hundred or so, or five fifty. Five four three was the lowest. Yeah, and um, and some of them went up close to nine hundred, if I recall. Again. Yeah. So we're talking a you know moderate to high. T levels for the quote unquote normal range. And they went down uh, averaging around 200 nanograms per deciliter, which is hypogonadal. That's what you'd see in a 75 year old male, you know, on average or, or older. Um, and it happens very quickly. Uh, so you start seeing, as Pac said, it's really this uh, linear decrease. Um, and again, we did not look, we, the case study only looked at pre comp. So post-comp, what's really interesting is these, it's very labile testosterone. And when they start refeeding, when they start eating again and gaining back body fat, they re-establish uh, re, uh, their previous testosterone levels quite rapidly. In our case study, um, the uh, competitor's T level fell to, it was around 170. Again, I don't remember the exact fact, but somewhere around 170, 175 nanograms per deciliter. Um, within one month after the competition of eating well again and gaining back body fat, he was close to 600 nanograms per deciliter, which was his no, which was his baseline, which he generally established throughout the year. So he basically recovered everything very quickly. So you see these transient losses, but they are not, it's not like it quote unquote damages your testosterone levels. Now, I, I'd want to point out that these are looking at single competitions and it's not clear if you continue over time, not saying you, Steve, uh, but if you keep, uh, you know, pre-contest dieting. So if you do shows, let's say over 10 years, it's not clear if it can dysregulate uh, testosterone function and ultimately result in lowering chronic T levels. We don't have any data on that, but I do think it's 
interesting, important to note that these, even though you're seeing this large decrease, uh, it is not uh, permanent. And I, I'd also say it's also interesting that, well, we don't have good data, but you start looking at the lean mass loss in uh, in the men. It, we we don't generally don't have T levels taken at each month to try to uh, try to uh, put on on par with what their lean mass losses are. But it could be as the T levels start going very low that that can start to accelerate. We certainly would think that as you get in the very low regions of body fat mass, uh, that that would accelerate the loss of lean mass, perhaps initiated by uh, chronically low testosterone levels. So I thought that was interesting. And, and the other thing that um, I thought was interesting uh, was that the estrogen really was not affected that much in the women for the most part. But the, um, I guess we'll talk about this next, but physiologically, the menstrual function uh, was dysfunctional in, in every one of the women. So you're seeing that the even though the uh, estrogen in the women that were were charted did not seem to uh, move that much. They did have a dysfunction of of their menstruation, where I think three were uh, went into amenorrhea, so they lost their period, and the other had a uh, dysfunction. I think her period was five days late or something. It was so anyway. It caused dysregulation of menstrual function, despite yeah. really not affecting the estrogen levels, which is, seems to be a dichotomy. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change, sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, I found uh, just to talk about the testosterone because uh, not that I've had mine tested very I should do blood work probably more often to check my health and things. But I looked at some of my um, testosterone scores when I had had it tested and like just like off season, mine was four, seven, eight. So below what these guys were at, because they, like you said, they had actually pretty damn good testosterone levels, uh, everyone involved in the study. And I don't know if it makes a difference, but I had my, I was, I had a piss test uh, on a show day when I competed. And uh, at least in that test, it came out as mine was 8.3. So like these, I don't know if that influences the results, but I was just like, wow, okay, mine was uh, even below these, but it, it brings me back to the initial comment, at least that there's just a wide range for people. And I mean, it's very consistent testosterone drops for males in particular. And, and by the way, I would add just to give some more context, uh, in our case study, I was contacted recently by the uh, competitor who did our case study. He just did another show, his T level. So when we tested it, it was 1. Uh, 170 nanograms per deciliter. It was 76. Uh, and he won a show, by the way. So uh, 
So it just goes to show that you don't necessarily have to have high T levels by the time of your competition to do well in your show. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think to your point in terms of how it rebounds, it isn't something I've gone out of my way to like get blood tests and kind of see it coming up. But like the the symptoms of low T dissipate relatively quickly when you increase food. I found that every time as I come out of a diet, uh, a contest prep and also competitors, although it's, it is individual uh, for sure. Some people just take a bit longer. Others uh, can like get it quite quickly back. So, and it is very interesting about the estrogen. Did you, did you have uh, any thoughts on whether the estrogen component being maintained led to their fat-free mass being more uh, better maintained throughout as well? So that's an interesting point because estrogen is kind of the female testosterone, if you will, that it does, uh, there is correlations between estrogen and lean mass. But uh, again, I it's possible. We, we, we didn't do it. Obviously, there's no mechanistic work that's done here, but I'm sticking with my gut feeling and my hypothesis that I, I would attribute it probably most likely to the fact that uh, the body fat levels were just fairly, I don't want to say, obviously they're not high in women, but they're much substantially higher than they were in the men. And did you have any thoughts to the leptin and why that didn't drop as you guys would have, like, as we would have all expected it to drop? Like, just seems strange. <laughs> uh, kind of, that that's a head scratcher to me. Because yeah. You, yeah. Especially your body fat levels get really low. You think that your leptin is going to drop and that, uh, because leptin, of course, is the, uh, fat lipostat, if you will. It's, yeah. Basically, it serves to monitor your fat levels and, and also, by the way, your your nutritional intake, so your energy intake. And when both of them are going down rapidly, kind of doesn't make sense. But the data says what it says, right? <laughs> data are what the data are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't know if Pac, you can if we can move on to neuromuscular performance and what you guys found when you're looking through that. For sure, and that was um, that was very interesting. Um, looked at power and strength, actually, uh, various outcomes. So, just to start, they used uh, a plethora of different methods to assess uh, power and strength. Um, so it's somewhat difficult to compare. But when talking about power, so when they 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 assessed, they did like a Wingate test, a vertical jump test, and a, um, a cycle ergometer test. So. Many athletes, uh, in general, they experienced uh, absolute decreases in power um, as they were dieting, but uh, they maintained or increased their power relative to body weight. So, which I think was was really interesting, especially because when we look at uh, how that how those when those changes occurred. So the some athletes show increases in absolute power during the early stages um, of comp prep, and then those absolute changes started dropping off. Now those absolute changes going up, uh, so those absolute increases at the beginning may have been as a result of the athletes getting more familiar with uh, the, the testing uh, modality. But um, as far as power goes, at the at the end of the the study, uh, things didn't look that bad. Um, so there were some absolute uh, decreases, but relative to body weights, things seem to be relatively similar uh, versus pre uh, pre -comp, uh, contest prep. As far as strength, now strength was tested again with uh, like there was a study that did a one RM test. There was a 
other studies that look at isometric looked at isometric test uh, isometric strength but most athletes were able to maintain or increase their strength during the pre-contest period um which somewhat aligns with previous research obviously again keep in mind um we're talking about relative strength increases but there was one study where an athlete experienced absolute strength uh, um sorry one one athlete that experienced uh, absolute strength increases but then maintained or slightly increased their their relative strength and that was uh, that was in the squat uh, the squat study um that's it so the athletes though that experienced absolute strength increases those were seen on either the asymmetric knee extension um or the hand grip uh, strength test which must be viewed with with some caution but if we look at a more ecologically sort of valid or, or common metric of strength which was one repetition maximum uh strength um which was part of one of the the case studies although numbers went down as far as the absolute numbers went down relative strength to body weight which is something i try to emphasize for for clients as well remained very similar if not slightly increased at some points um which is which is interesting because a lot of people get into contest prep thinking oh i am losing strength because my absolute strength is going down on the squad when uh, in reality the relative strength is similar if not higher plus their leverages may be uh, changing uh, significantly which can also play play a role so that's those were the neuromuscular results uh, in a nutshell yeah i think it's kind of interesting that um obviously there is a well-established mostly well-established link between strength and uh hypertrophy it's been there's been some controversy in the field but um the this does lend credence to that that uh there's when lean mass is lost, you do lose strength, but on the, it kind of charted pretty well with the lean mass uh, losses. So particularly in the men that there were certainly the weight losses and you have to, we, we didn't actually do correlational analysis, but just from an eyeballing perspective, it seemed to align fairly well that it, it wasn't. So here, here's what to me, I would have thought I would have speculated that as you know, Steve, when you start getting into uh, bodybuilding, serious bodybuilding pre-comp prep, you start to, most people start to feel a more lethargic. Uh, you're obviously uh, nutritionally depleted, energy depleted. And uh, that would seemingly have a negative effect on strength. And it seemingly didn't here. So uh, purely then we could say that this would be related. And by the way, it we did a mood states, which we'll, I guess, get to, but it didn't, that really didn't seem to show that much, interestingly. Um, but anyway, but I think it does give some interesting context to that. Uh, yes, you're going to lose strength when you lose body mass and lose, certainly lose some lean mass, but that it's not a exponential loss. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the the mood, like the strength the results and the power results were somewhat surprising to me. Um, somewhat though, somewhat interesting, I'll say. Not 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 surprising per se, but the mood uh results I think were slightly more interesting. Um and making that pass to myself. So they they looked at mood states, stress levels, and uh, in, in five out of the eleven case studies. Um five male and four female athletes essentially were covered. A bunch of different psychometric assessment tests were used. Now I'm not going to list all of them, but they, they were, there were a bunch. 
There was no significant sex-specific responses that were observed, and both females and males experienced low to moderate, moderate perceived stress with uh, some anxiety creeping up during uh, contest prep. Now, two studies reported that total mood disturbance increased as the comp date approached, um, which obviously like coincided with tiredness and uh, lower calories. Um, but what was interesting is that there was no, uh, so no athlete reported scores on the eating attitudes test that would indicate a need for professional intervention for eating disorders in the case reports. And I'm almost quoting the paper here, um, which I think was was uh, very interesting. Additionally, cognitive, cognitive restraint uh, increased by approximately 40% for both me, uh, male and female athletes uh, during, during the comp prep. And as far as uncontrolled eating behavior, there were some differences between males and females with males reporting an increase in terms of uncontrolled eating behavior, while uh, the females reported a decrease, which was uh, which was also uh, interesting. But overall, things did not look as bad as I would um, expect them to, not because I've competed a bunch, but I've uh, had friends and clients compete, and as far as mood disturbance goes, I've uh, I've heard some horror stories, but it may be more uh, of my personal sort of echo chamber affecting my my perception. Same um, same as with fatigue and and volume, and or even defending my PhD. I had, I had heard only horror stories, but my PhD defense was uh, one of the you know, best times of my my life, that four-hour call. Anyways, I'm going off on a tangent here. <laughs> All that to say, um, those those results were interesting, to me at least. The altered, I want to point out the altered eating uh, data. There were only two competitors. It was, it was men and women, but there was one man and one woman. So it wasn't like we had a lot of data on that. Uh, and the male uh, reported altered eating, so basically uh, uncontrolled reports of uncontrolled eating and had a lot of disturbances, whereas the wom woman didn't. But I, I think it's also important to remember that that male, because that was actually our study, I and I was on the other study as well from uh, Grant Tinsley's lab, uh, the woman competed at around 14% body fat. So she, it wasn't like she was getting really lean to the point where that conceivably would have been something to really worry about, whereas the male got down to 5% body fat. And uh, we did see the scores really start to track in that uh, uncontrollable eating context when he got really low in his body fat levels and, and obviously close to his comp. I'm seeing a repeating theme here that we should not get this lean <laughs> or well, rather, it, if it, you don't it, need to. <laughs> and it, it also points out it not isn't necessarily a sex-specific uh, factor that it wasn't necessarily sure. the men feel more, uh, you know, had more issues with that than the women. It probably, again, we don't know, but probably is more contextual to the amount of fat that was lost. Yeah. I, I just wanted to bring it also back. I think it was a, a really pertinent point about kind of strength maintenance throughout a contest prep and pack you said you really reinforce kind of uh, the relative strength and something i always look into and i mean pack you'll know this better than me is like wilk scores like that's something that always i think it was from 3dmj like eric helms and co 
back a long time ago when they were talking through preps and they brought up like, oh, but how how's your wheel, like your squat has gone down, but what's your actual Wilk score here because you're lighter now? And that just clicked for me immediately at that time. So that's something I very much focused on during that period of time. So I think that was just a good point that you guys raised where it's like, hey, look at your relative strength, not your absolute strength, because there's reasons why you'd lose strength during prep. Um, yeah. but I guess it is that both of you would confirm the jury's out, even if you are maintaining strength, you can't be sure you're actually maintaining muscle. Because I guess even here that was shown, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Correct. So, yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I mean, they were actually were losing some strength, but uh, but on relative on a relative basis, they weren't. So again, we didn't correlate that. But yeah, you cannot necessarily use certainly. You can't use in a deficit to say if you're maintaining strength, then you're maintaining your muscle. You conceivably, and again, this needs to be verified. Uh, can it we speculate maybe that if you're increasing your strength, it may infer that you're gaining some muscle? But even that, I mean, you gain the there are neural factors. It is not one thing we know. There's maybe a little controversy as to whether. I shouldn't, to me, it's not controversial, but some people would say there's a controversy whether strength and uh, hypertrophy are related, but it's very clear it's not a linear relationship and that there are certainly multiple other factors that are involved in strength acquisition that you can't just assume because you're gaining strength. And it's been well documented that people can stay in a certain weight class as a power lifter and increases one RM or her one RM. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's, what what we what we're seeing here in the study as well is that more neutral strength uh, strength tests like the isometric uh, leg extension uh, test remained so athletes there saw an increase um, but they still lost uh, some some lean mass whereas with uh, a more I'd say leverage sensitive uh, test like the squad one RM or just rm in general that's where we saw big absolute decreases but the takeaway shouldn't be freak out if you're losing strength or uh, make sure your strength is going up so that you're maintaining all muscle mass but the, the takeaway should be engage in high intensity of effort resistance training expect some things to to change and make sure that you are dieting at a relatively conservative pace um, because that for sure will make a difference. So you shouldn't you shouldn't take the the findings of this uh, systematic review and go, oh, okay, I'm just going to absolutely yolo it now with my deficit, and it's fine if I lose some strength because then you may be losing more muscle mass than if you were to go on a much more conservative uh, calorie deficit where you'd still see some absolute decreases in strength. What would be interesting though is to see to have some case studies on. Um, sort of machine like obviously we had some neutral tests here but it would be nice to have some ecologic more ecologically valid uh, measures of strength in terms of like bodybuilders where we would have things like a chest press machine like and a lat pull down versus a barbell bench press or a squat one repetition maximum strength test um, and compare actually training uh, training loads uh, during contest prep versus pre-contest prep that would be that would be cool to see yeah, that's a great point, Pac. And I would add to that, that one of the things that perhaps is a confounder here in the neutral strength test. So usually like in, in our lab, we did a, on our case study, we did a um, iso, uh, isometric uh, knee extension on an isometric dynamometer. 
there can be a learning effect to that. So, you know, when you're doing, when that's something that bodybuilders generally are not used to doing. So when they do it the first time, they may get a lower reading. And as they're doing it on subsequent visits, they're getting more used to the test at that point. Whereas if you're doing it on a one RM or, or some dynamic exercise, they're much more used to doing squats or whatever leg press. Uh, and thus there was not going to be generally as much of a learning effect. Yeah, for sure. That makes uh, a ton of sense. And uh, anecdotally, at least when Brad, you mentioned when people are, at least in your case study, getting below that 7% body fat, that's when like lean tissue uh, was lost at the greatest extent. That's typically when I see for those that struggle to get to that like really great condition, they start seeing performance just plummet at that point so at least from my anecdotal experience it's correlated to that extent and it makes sense uh to me at least as well like you brad uh the the strength is kind of correlated with hypertrophy in that sense i don't know if there was anything else you guys wanted to talk about psychometric outcomes or we could talk about the physiological adaptations um i have nothing to nothing to to add uh, besides hey um when competition when your competition is approaching expect um your mood to potentially change a bit but i mean i'm I'm sure this wasn't insanely an insanely surprising finding um but you don't need to necessarily uh, nocebo yourself that things are going to go, get you know that you're going to be losing your mind and you're going to be unbearable to be around things may be um a, a bit rougher than than usual but based on the results here it, it didn't seem to be you know it didn't seem to be a huge change however what would be interesting again here is to see um you know competition uh, how competition experience related to that um work schedule sleep duration yeah. and then so on and so forth and try to draw try to draw inferences from those relationships which we obviously didn't do to a very you know to a detailed extent yeah, I think a couple other important things to point out that, um, and Pac, you have the data there, but the uh, metabolic rate dropped fairly substantially in, in virtually all the competitors, uh, yeah. which just makes sense. It, it goes to the adaptive thermogenesis uh, concept, whereas you start to especially get lower and lower in your body fat levels and your nutritional intake that the body tries to conserve energy and is going to lower its metabolic rate. I will say again that we have in our post-competition, uh, so we in our case study, we followed the competitor four months after the comp, and that again uh, rebounds quite quite nicely. Uh, so there wasn't really a, any latent effect of that. And I thought also the other interesting thing, and Pac certainly feel free to hop in here, the other interesting thing is that there really wasn't much negatives as far as uh, sleep disturbance either. So we said mood wasn't affected, and I mm. guess would go along with this, that sleep but generally, if I recall, you got, again, this is, I don't have the data in front of me, but if I recall, the sleep was not, there was, I think, some minor uh, reports of some sleep disturbances, but nothing, again, that would really stand out. And that, again, leads to the uh, perhaps somewhat misperception that uh, when you're competing, that everything is all screwed up in your body, and that uh, and from a mood and a uh, psychologic standpoint, at least for the competitors that were in this uh, case uh, systematic review, that didn't seem to be the case. Yeah, I would say from my experience, 
the uh, like psychometric outcomes were a little bit surprising, like you said, Pac. I, it's mixed. It's, it's like you kind of put the context out there, Pac. The environment makes a huge difference. If someone is like a bachelor and they work from home and they have no commitments, like they can have the best sleep hygiene and stress management and they can feel kind of pretty hunky-dory. Whereas, I don't know, someone who's working a really stressful job and or like, I don't know, finances are an issue for them, these sort of things. Their sleep can sometimes take a knock, like if they have children or what have you, and they wake them up in the night, like these all kind of come into here. But I think it's great, like you mentioned there, Brad, that it's, and you said, Pac, not to nocebo yourself. Like if you can control these things, they could be much better. And again, just myself, like my first prep, these things were not in a great place, but every time I've competed, they've got better and I've learned more. And by the time I competed uh, last time, my sleep was, it was pretty reasonable throughout the whole entire time. It was not... Um, by any means bad as what it has been in the past and you sometimes hear these horror stories so i think yeah. kind of education on that front helps a ton like understanding sure. how you can set yourself up for good sleep and i, I, th I think that oh sorry please oh, go, go on Pat. so i th i think that's an interesting area that we as researchers need to explore not just with obviously competition prep but with uh, with other things even volume with uh, with a design that sort of not deceives in a, in, a, in, a neg in a negative way the participants, but creates different uh, expectations. And then we see whether telling somebody, hey, you are about to do an extremely hard workout. This is going to be like, you may not make it versus saying, hey, you know, this is just a regular workout or you're going to be on a diet versus like, this is going to be an extreme diet, whether that uh, alters uh, Fatigue, soreness perception, effectiveness perception, and so on and so forth. Because uh, I do feel like with a lot of things, and contest prep as well, obviously, you know, I'm not the one to speak. But um, I would, if I was to 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 do a contest prep now, simply uh, from, from hearing, you know, people being like, yeah, this is going to be extremely tough and this is going to get really, really bad towards the end and your mood is going to be all over the place. I may go into it thinking that, you know, oh, okay, I am supposed to be feeling a certain way right now and that may actually affect the, the way I'm feeling. So, yeah, it would be interesting to look at uh, whether, you know, actually, plus, or not placeboing, but whether, whether the the way contest prep or whatever is presented to an individual affects uh, their expectations and then affects how they actually re respond to it, both physiologically and psychologically. Yeah, I was going to say in, as a take-home here, I think one of the interesting things to me from a total take-home perspective, as far as how the competitors go about their practice, so there was quite there was a lot of variation in terms of the uh, training and the nutrition uh you know just the approach to it but really all of them took a long time or reasonably long time more than four months or more uh usually more and they all lost had very um small increments of weight loss so they they approached it there's not this bulking and cutting concept that was popular back you know in the back in the 80s type of thing where uh, the lead priest uh, phenomenon uh, where the bodybuilders would just look to really mass, uh, you know, bulk and then cut. And what you see now is that there's this trend towards taking longer periods of time and losing weight more slowly, which is consistent. I think it's kind of cool that it is consistent with the literature that we have that to particularly when you are 
uh, natural, when you're a natural bodybuilder, to really prevent uh, lean mass loss, you need to do it in a slow, steady fashion. Yep, for sure. And that's that's something that we've seen in the literature as well with uh, with greater energy deficits um, almost never being a, a thumbs up for for muscle retention or even for potential muscle gain because um, there are cases where you may be in the deficit obviously like for competitive bodybuilders i doubt any unless you're starting at 35 percent body fat um you may not be so lucky as to to make a ton of gains but yeah definitely agree i'm, I'm, I'm just echoing brad here and uh, rambling uh, so yeah i think i think that's a great take home like take your time with it and i think like I'd second that kind of avoid starting prepping like that peak mass Lee Priest kind of like way over stage weight, maybe start a little bit leaner so that you don't have such a long journey too. I found that to be uh, really good for people. So you, and start prepping a very like healthy state. <laughs> don't start it already slightly fatigued and kind of beat up in that regard too. And uh, essentially setting yourself up for as much success as possible. And it sounds like uh, at least my, one of my big take homes here is particularly that and we know this as body fat drops you want to slow your rate of loss but particularly from those males who are getting below 10 percent and they're trying to get towards that five percent that kind of journey there is like a tightrope and you probably really want to travel that slowly and as you pointed out brad sometimes it's not even worth continuing to travel there and just be a bit soft like quote unquote softer you're still incredibly shredded but fuller and more symmetry more size that sort of thing and focus on the look not just like arbitrary other markers yeah and because you touched on the on the the yolo bulk uh, sort of trend um i think that we may see the the case for dirty bulking or gaining substantial amounts of weight um become like less and less uh, a thing in the in the following years there's more data coming out showing that greater energy surpluses will not necessarily lead to more muscle mass but definitely more fat gain although some terms and conditions apply and more research uh, may be needed. Um, but what's what's very encouraging is that we're seeing that even at maintenance calories, um, substantial muscle gains are are possible. So that's just 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 a, a bit of a of a side note for the people listening. Like, and I'm not I'm not sure how because Steve, I assume you work most a lot with with competitive bodybuilders. Is that has your practice changed as far as um, prescribing? different uh surpluses of different magnitudes i think uh not not hugely uh that kind of recommendation of one to two percent per month has stood the test of time quite well but with the uh, paper that came out which eric helms was on that kind of shifted me a little bit more towards that one percent i i like a surplus for most um especially when they're doing things right and maybe they're a bit more novice in particular like i think it can be really useful to grow but yeah, has shifted a bit slower versus definitely not like very quick, fast rates of gain because that just typically shorts, shortcuts the amount of time you can gain for and you don't really gain that much more in that period of time that, with that surplus apart from fat. Mm. <laughs> By the way, before we finish, I do want to give a shout out to my, in particular to my students who, uh, several of them who collaborated on this uh, paper. Uh, they were instrumental in aggregating a lot of the data and also to colleagues, Eric Helms and Bill Campbell, and who am I forgetting, Pac? I don't want to leave anyone out here uh, because yes. this is a really collaborative, team collaborative effort. Uh, so Bill- Guillermo Escalante. Guillermo, and... correct. 
and uh, there was one other Alexa, Alexa, Alexa. Stellan. So uh, yeah, you, uh, when you start publishing a lot of papers, you get you forget who you've been on, which paper you're on with different people. But um, but yeah, I mean, all of them deserve a shout out for this because uh, everyone had their own particular area to write up and to analyze. Uh, and again, it was a real team effort. So, uh, you know, myself and Pack are on now, but don't want to leave them out in terms of their contributions. For sure. And it's 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 important to note that uh, the way this paper was uh, sort of approached, aside from like the coding and, and sorting the data and shout out to to the team, the Applied Muscle and Development Lab team for, for working that, um, different researchers uh, took charge of different areas of the paper, which was really cool to see because essentially everybody uh, landed their um, expertise to to cover different areas of the paper. And, and then so we all, out. right, we did that. And then we all kind of chimed in on each other's sections to give other feedback and how it potentially, of course, PACs could not be improved, but the rest of us uh we got feedback well i want to say a massive thank you to you both for coming on and spending the time with me today and obviously the rest of the team as well uh, i'm sure this won't be the last time either of you on the show maybe another kind of joint call at some point we can talk about some other juicy topics within uh, the uh, bodybuilding scene uh, i'll make sure uh, people know where to find your work um, i'll let you kind of I, i'll be surprised if people aren't already following you brad but i'll, I'll give you the opportunity to give those who aren't uh, the place to go where should they go uh yeah i mean i'm on you could just google me i'm on instagram i'm on uh twitter or x i guess it's called now and I'm, <laughs> I'm still on facebook i really don't do much on there uh but yeah just google me and i have a blog if people are interested so all free content thank you brad and pack where are you i am so if, if people find me on instagram uh under dr double underscore pak um, all my links are there so i'm sure i'm sure if you want to look at my re research gate for the one person that uh, actually will want to look at the, the full text of these studies all my links uh, are there podcasts schmodcasts and so on and so forth thank you again i'll make sure that's all linked in the description as well and i have the study link for this paper that we talked about too if people do want to dig into it further thank you guys for listening we'll catch you on the next one Peace. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.